It's December 14th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. To kick off today's show, we're going to have a short update on the Radio Flyers program, then on to the tech calendar. Paige Donnelly from the Shangri-La Center for Islamic Arts and Culture will join us to tell us about the TAP, or Technology Art Politics, Wikipedia-a-thon. After that, Joe Carlson from Dev League will tell us about an upcoming hackathon called Stupid Stuff Nobody Needs. I like how you said stuff. Yes. Then after the break, we'll go back to the watershed well and dive deeper into how submarine groundwater affects marine life. And, of course, coastal ecosystems. We'll talk to Craig Glenn, Henrietta Dulai, and Celia Smith from the University of Wash- uh, <laughs> University of Hawaii. Why am I talking about? Well, you love the University of Washington, too. But yeah. this is University of Hawaii. We'll ask what sorts of contaminants get into our groundwater and what does that mean for the ocean. Of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. But first, we wanted to let you know that our Radio Flyers campaign lifted off today, and we have 4000 to go to make our first matching gift of $10,000 from Dr. Tom Kosasa. Now, right now, your year-end donation could be doubled, then multiplied again when we transfer 10 Hawaiian miles for every dollar given to Kapi'olani Medical Center for Women and Children's Family Fund. Now, those miles help fly neighbor island families to and from Honolulu so they can be with their hospitalized young child. Please donate online at hawaiipublicradio.org, or of course, you can call Call 808-955-8821 before the end of the day. And, of course, that is nearing us now. You'll be making spirits brighter, including your own. Again, donations of any amount are welcome on the HPR website. Or let us help you by calling our Honolulu office at 955-8821. And, of course, we want to welcome Paige Donnelly from the Doris Duke Shangri-La to tell us about the TAP, or Technology Art Politics, Wikipedia-thon. Welcome to the show, Paige. Thanks, Bert. It's so great to be here. Well, you know, we've always wanted to figure out ways to bring more arts uh, into the conversation that we have. And, you know, it's great to hear that you folks are kind of getting into this technology realm, you know, I mean, with Wikipedia and, and trying to do a sort of Wikipedia-thon. Tell us what sort of sparked this idea. Yeah, so Shangri-La is a museum for Islamic art, culture, and design, um, and we are piloting a bunch of experimental programs, um, one of them being this Wikipedia edit-a-thon, looking at the intersection of technology, art, and politics. Um, And for this edition, we'll specifically look at um, how that intersection um, comes together in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you had this before, or is this this like an ongoing kind of series? Yeah, so this will be the pilot of um, a future um, series of TAPX um, mm-hmm. iterations. Um, we've oh, done I get it, like TEDx, but it's TAPX. There you go. Oh, <laughs> so tell me more. So, so TAPX will look at um, a bunch of different regions, um, sort of the contemporary fabric of what makes up um, sort of al- also our areas of interest. Um, so looking at how designers, how um, startups, how entrepreneurs, how artists, um, and also how activists are mm-hmm. all coming together mm. um, in, in sort of this 
um, creative. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. I love it. We've talked about hackathons, obviously, quite a bit. There was a write-a-thon that Bird mm-hmm. helped organize in terms of writing um, helpful guides for citizens for the city government some time ago. So a Wikipedia edit-a-thon sounds exciting to me, too. I also, uh, and I think our other guests, really love that acronym of technology, art, and politics. The last one certainly being the one that might add a little bit of spice to any conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine the place for art with Shangri-La. Um, can you talk a little bit about the intersection of those last two letters, art and politics? Yeah, I, I guess I want to take a step back and just tell you a little bit about like our overall mission for doing this. Okay. It's really to um, amplify underrepresented voices on Wikipedia, um, mainly voices um, in this iteration from the Middle East. Um, Wikipedia's editors are mostly... Um, Mostly white, mostly older scholars. Um, so this is our chance to train sort of diverse variety of editors and also um, implement and improve um, content that already exists on Wikipedia. Um, so that that broad scope also mm-hmm. then includes technology and politics. I think we we look at we look at technology and politics through the lens of art at Shangri La. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm wondering um, <clears throat> in terms of the. Uh, Activity that somebody would encounter if they were par- to participate in this uh, Wikipedia thought. Could you describe how the day might unfold? Bert, that's a great question. So we'll start off um, with about an hour to a 90 minute training session. Um, so you don't have to come with any prior knowledge. We'll have Wikipedians, which are Wikipedia experts, um, train our participants and then. Um, after a short break, you'll get into editing, um, and editing will be about three to four hours with uh, with a lunch break and then a complimentary tour of Sh- Shangri La. Wow! Now, this uh, when you said tap X, and then Bert got excited because of sort of it does remind us of TEDx. Is this a a movement that is global, or is this uh, uh, something generated purely out of Shangri La? This is. Hawaii based. That's amazing. So you could also start something that could spread beyond that. That's the hope. Now for um, Wikipedia, of course, it is a crowdsourced sort of system, but there is a meritocracy. There are authorities. There are, as you met, as you mentioned, probably a lot of entrenched interests in terms of uh, moderating the content of uh, Wikipedia articles. Um, I would hope that there's an opportunity for the great material that you might generate during the Wikipedia-thon to live on whether or not those edits, you know, are able to survive in Wikipedia, because that also happens quite a bit, that you put a lot of work into an article. I've certainly done it, building out an article about a Hawaii topic that I love, and then after, you know, 800 words and careful thought and hyperlinks and sources, it just disappears because they say, that's not notable. Right. No, it can be a bit of a vicious world. I've actually experienced the same thing. <laughs> but I guess so there's there's a larger initiative called GLAM, which is galleries, libraries, mm, archives right, right. and museums. And if you get set up on a GLAM page, you sort of notify the Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not only an encyclopedia, but it's also a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if you notify the community and you kind of get in cahoots with, um, as you said, like the larger brand of Wikipedia, um, then you usually they're they're more lenient and you can talk more. It's it's almost like a talk story on the talk page. Yes, yes. Um, so go back and forth if there are questions about your edits or. Um, and the other thing I recommend for new editors is to really start by improving pages rather mm-hmm. than creating Generating new ones. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I'm glad you brought it up because you know we are sort of advocates for the whole idea of open knowledge and open data and open source. And Open Glam is another one. I was uh, fortunate to go to an uh, Open Knowledge Foundation festival over in Berlin, and, and right. Open Glam was kind of a big, big deal. And so I've been looking for people here in Hawaii that 
even know what GLAM stands for, and you actually brought it up. So I just wanted to say that, you know, let's talk later. <laughs> the <laughs> other thing that I want to ask you, which is a question, um, you said Wikipedia experts that you're going to invite to the day to actually, what kind of, are they local experts, or are you flying them in, or who are these experts? <laughs> well, you're, well, I, I guess I'm using the term expert loosely oh, okay. um, because I'm also including myself in that group of people. I'm just I'm, I met more Wikipedians who have um, already had some prior experience mm-hmm. to editing okay. on site because there is some syntax to it in terms of the, the the way it works, and obviously the requirement for citations. I mean, you hit some articles, and every other citation is citation needed, citation needed right. <laughs> because you can't make a statement of fact; you have to back right. it up. So, okay, that's interesting. I know I know a very avid the Wikipedia editor who, like me, has had the same frustration of, this is a beautiful article, and then it just disappears. But um, having that kind of expertise and that kind of background would be helpful. So if somebody in Hawaii is available to participate and can also bring information from the perspective of working with the Wikipedia community, they'd, they'd be an asset to this event. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we've worked with uh, people who are sort of more entrenched within the Wikipedia mm-hmm. community before um, on one other sort of offshoot that we've done. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we're really hoping to use like our archives and, and our resources that we have on site and even the scholars that we've worked with in the past to bring to, or shed light on sort of a new trove of resources. And, um, but yes, we're always looking for um, to expand our Wikipedia community as well. Well, I like the, mo- the motivation to represent underrepresented voices and this one being focused on the Middle East. I would say that it's an area of knowledge that maybe most, lo- most Hawaii residents aren't fully versed in apart from the those that are lucky enough to spend time at Shangri-La. So uh, it would be, I would hope, an opportunity for someone to come and also just sort of learn about the topics that you're trying to spread awareness of. Right, right. Now, we see the day as sort of this educational experience. And and yeah, so not only learn about Wikipedia, but also learn about um, Middle Eastern culture. So this first event is kind of a smaller event, but you have plans for bigger, more public events. Maybe tell us what the what the process might be. Exactly. Um, so, so this event, we're still sort of getting up and running. Um, and once we gear up, I think a couple months down the line, we're looking at having actually hubs of Wikipedia edit-a-thons. So within the span of 24 hours, um, we will partner with a bunch of different organizations, both on island and perhaps off island. Um, to really launch something a little bit bigger than what we've got going on. Well, I better give you my card. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very good. Okay, so we will check that out, and we definitely want to hear what results from this Wikipedia-thon. I think I'm going to go, you know. Sounds like Bert will be there. (laughs) And I'll be taking some pictures and reporting back on, uh, you know, this first Wikipedia-thon. So thank you, Paige, for joining us. Where would someone go to find uh, information on where and when it's happening and participate? I I would recommend checking our Twitter feed. Um, We're at Thai underscore Shangri-La. And we're actually going to be crowdsourcing um, some of the pages that we will edit. So if you have ideas for pages on technology, art, and politics in the Middle East, um, just um, tweet out at us, and you can use the hashtag um, tap, T-A-P-X, Middle East. Okay, and this is t- taking place on the 17th? 17th, yeah, Saturday. Saturday. Fantastic. Thanks, right. Ryan. Thanks, Bert. Thank you for joining us on the air. Very good. Okay, and now we want to welcome Joe Carlson. He's here from Dev League, and he's here to tell us about something called, well, we actually changed the name. It's, he had another name, and we didn't want to mention it on the air, but it's called Stupid Stuff Nobody Needs in Hawaii. Hackathon. Welcome to the show, Joe. Burton Ryan, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, we're big fans of the uh, the Dev League program, and we we 
Uh, I also love, though, that there's kind of this, I wouldn't say subversive, but certainly more playful side to it mm-hmm. as well. I mean, uh, very recently there was a news story that the percentage of female graduates of Dev League is above the national average of most coding boot camps. And I think that's something that Russell uh, is very proud of, Jason as well. Um, so there's certainly the social good angle of it, but having fun mm. is a big part of it, too. And um Bert and I love hackathons and things that we can bring a community together to improve life for everybody and serve the social good. Mm -hmm. So where did you decide that now is the time to create (laughs) a hackathon for stupid stuff that nobody needs? Well, uh, as a DevLeague instructor, we do a lot of hackathons. So part of the curriculum at DevLeague is to bring our students to hackathons. We think it's a good way to, like, get our students out and, like, actually, like, apply their skills in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, as an instructor, we do a lot. Like I probably do one once a month. Once every two months, I'll do one. Um, and they're yeah, they're, they're great. Um, uh, but it's uh, they're always like the, in hackathons. For people who don't know, it's it's a, it's we try to build something, right? It's not like you're hacking into something. You're trying to build something. <laughs> and and most hackathons have some sort of purpose, right? Like either trying to build something, like solve the water crisis or end homelessness. You know, these are very noble causes. Um, but uh, after doing a ton of them, right, like most of the time you're just working on code for a weekend and you don't solve the problem. It's like it's a start of, of it's a start of solving it, but usually it doesn't it doesn't solve it. I think that the the Hawaii State for hack, first hackathon hack was a good step. Yes. Yeah. Start well, in the right you. direction. Thank good work, work. Um, <laughs> like trying like different models out with like redoing it over longer periods of time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it, for for us and for me, it's. Hackathons, it's the funnest part about it is just building stuff with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the purpose. Like some of the times, I'm like really motivated about it, and that's great. Um, but really, the, the, what motivates me to go to all of them is just building stuff, and that's what this is about—the stupid stuff hackathon. It's about just building stuff with your friends. So normally, when we uh, participate in in a hackathon, <clears throat> there's resources that are sort of made available. We try to encourage the sponsors to have data that might be available mm-hmm. or some kind of API or some, you know, maybe some uh, widgets that might be used as as part of the building block of mm-hmm. whatever that you want to build. What is it that you're going to offer for stupid stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, we have nothing. We have nothing. <laughs> that sounds um, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like uh, – this whole hackathon is a celebration of nothingness. It's a, There's no purpose. Um, it's really about just like making something creative. It's That's all it's about. Um, so like even with like this hackathon too, it's even not just for developers. Most hackathons you see are like you make some sort of program, some sort of web application or whatever. Um, but this – we want to open it to everybody too, like artists, hmm. um, hackers, hardware hackers, um, developers, whatever. Um, we want everybody in. Um and really, like, the idea is just to make something totally useless that no one's ever made before. Now, th- this reminds me, for example, of the Japanese concept of Shindogu, right? These gadgets that are effectively like Rube Goldberg's machines that accomplish nothing. Mm. But it's in the exercise of developing it that really the fun and the value comes from it. Yep. So uh, I would love, although we certainly don't want to seed potential participants with the best <laughs> ideas, yeah. surely you have something in your head or a couple of examples of what a stupid thing might be that someone might want to try to build at the Stupid Stuff Hackathon. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a couple ideas, too. Um, so um, the Stupid Hackathon, this is part of like a global hackathon. It's They've had Stupid Hackathons in New York, San Francisco, oh, okay. Austria, Berlin, um, they've Toronto. They've been all over the world, and we were bringing it here. Um, but so, they've some, been some 
hilarious ideas than at other hackathons. Like, um, like uh, you know, 3D printers that prints out cheese whiz. Or um, that sounds useful to me. I know. Okay, okay. See, that's like the best ideas though are the ones who straddle the line between just being so stupid and like kind of brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, that's and like even still, like if you make a really terrible idea, like something amazing might come out of that. Um, you never know, right? Like it's just about like making something just just for the sake of it, just for, like just for the pure sake of creation. Yeah, like one example that I always see is a, a toilet paper roll on yeah. your hat, or on your head. That's useful, Because you though. just might need that wherever you are. Yeah, then, exactly. Like putting <laughs> putting putting dusters on the feet of your cat so your cat can dust while he walks around yeah. the house. Like, you never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's been some other ones, like uh, some terrible ideas, like uh, a non-ad block, so it blocks out all the content on your webpage except for the ads. Um, <laughs> um, what are some other ones? You can make a – there's an ebook that puts a – a book inside of your ebook cover so you can read while you're reading. Um, lots of useful ideas. Lots of really useful ideas, too. So if you're into wearables, if you're yes. into hardware hacking, if yes. you're into Arduino and controllers and uh, things like that, yep. I mean, th- this hackathon is that open. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, we want it, like, it should be for everybody. Um, I see this, too, as, like, a good hackathon, too. If you've been, like, on the edge about it, like, maybe, like, removing the purpose from it can make, like, make the barrier of entry to getting into one, too. This is, like... It's just going to be like a fun party with people, like friends getting together and just making stuff together. So, so Joe, uh, normally, you know, hackathons might be the, – the, the fun level could be determined by the things that people might get as a result of participating in the, in the hackathon. <laughs> sure, yeah. And, of course, the more, you know, the more staid and serious ones might have – Prize money, right? You don't want to go to those. You want to, you want to have something that has more fun stuff. A bag of Doritos. Yeah, a bag of Doritos. So, what are you giving to incent people to have this kind of fun? Uh, we have, um, so we have sponsors from GitHub and um, uh, full, uh, ooh, um, uh, yeah, GitHub. DevLeague sponsoring it. We have a bunch of prizes too. Um, we also um, been printing out like little keycaps. With our little uh, emoji on it that we put together, and uh, yeah, it's it, the prizes. It's not really about the prizes, <laughs> yeah, right, so, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we, there's still our prizes too. We also have a super exclusive stickers you can only get at our hack. Okay, well, that's so what. That's, motiv- uh, have you seen Bert's laptop? Yeah, he yeah, loves yeah. Those stickers. Exactly. Uh, devs love stickers, uh, <laughs> and you're gonna get. The best stickers if you come to, the, to our stupid stuff hackathon. All right. Very so good. when is this event happening? This is happening on January 7th. That's oh, early up. warning. Very good. Yeah, exactly. A couple of weeks away. Um, it's a one-day event, 24 hours from like 9, maybe to like 7, not even 24 hours. So it's pretty <laughs> short, too. Uh, so you don't have to stay up all night. It's going to be a good time, though. All right. Very Where can good. someone go to find more information about this uh, event? Yes. Uh, you can go to uh, bit.ly slash uh, stupidhack808, or you can just Google stupidhack Hawaii. Stupid hack away. Okay, yeah, I, I, love will, it. I will definitely put that up on our show notes. Thanks, Joe, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This has been so fun. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Craig Glenn, Henrietta Dulai, and C- Celia Smith from UH to talk about recent groundwater study on Maui. How can what we learn on Maui translate to other islands? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio. You can Tweet us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Some of the most historic architecture in Italy is in need of some costly upkeep. Enter now, private business. I got so much from Italy. I'm making a fortune by selling Italian clothes in Japan. Why don't I just do something nice for this country that's given me a 
a tremendous economic opportunity. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Private companies paying for public treasures. That's next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, right after Bite Marks Cafe. Depending on how you look at it, Hawaii is either connected or divided by water. Whatever you call it, on Town Square, we get together each week to take on the issues that affect our island lives. We talk with the people making the news, or about to, within Hawaii or elsewhere. And always, the discussion includes your calls. Join us Thursdays at 5 on Town Square. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Randall Zawa. And joining us today are Craig Glenn, Henrietta Dulai, and Celia Smith. Craig Glenn is a professor in the School of Ocean, Earth, Science, and Technology in the Marine and Environmental Geology Division. Henrietta, meanwhile, is an associate professor also in the Marine and Environmental Geology Division, specializing in coastal hydrology and groundwater geochemistry. Celia, finally, is a professor in botany with a focus on physiological ecology of reef algae and corals. I hope we got that right. I I think think so. Yeah, okay, good. Good Googling there, Bert. Thank you. How does groundwater contaminants differ from surface water? We'll get into the details of all the different potential contaminants that could affect this groundwater. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Craig, uh, let's start with you. And, uh, you know, I, we want to kind of get a, a sense of everybody's uh, uh, specialties, but maybe give us a sense of uh, how did this kind of collaboration come together? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, we all kind of represent different sorts of uh, fields of specialty. I work on uh, groundwater geochemistry and its impact on the ocean. And Celia's a marine biologist. And Henrietta works in similar areas that I do and has a lot of specialties in radionuclides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, and and maybe tell us a little bit about why why Maui. I mean, there's a lot of potential study areas across the islands. I mean, we all kind of get our water in similar fashions. Sure. What, yeah. Was there something about Maui that really triggered this study? Yeah, we've we've been working throughout the islands, but Maui is. Uh, had a lot of problems with uh, invasive algae for yeah, a long time. If I can jump in, yeah. actually, uh, since I've been hired as long as like, long ago as 1988, one of the first phone calls that I received sitting as an assistant professor in my lab was from the mayor of Maui saying, what mm. do we do about this invasive algae that's coming up on our beaches? So mm-hmm. since the really the beginning of my career, this has been a focus of my lab. Mm-hmm. And it's moved from the Hypnia musiformis blooms to the DAR, the Division of Aquatic Resources, acknowledging and documenting the decline of corals on those same reefs. And so we have that plus another algal bloom in, of Cladophora in the 2000s. So right. by 2000, uh, about 2003, Henrietta and I started actually working together to look at submarine groundwater discharge from the suggestion of Frank Sansone, also in oceanography at UH. Um, that work was really focused on the on the Kahikili location in Lahaina, 
with NOAA funding through the EcoHab program. Mm -hmm. And we learned a lot, but this, I think, study really ties the whole package together. Now, now Henrietta, <clears throat> I mean, you know, we got to chat a little bit about uh, some of the projects, and we actually got to go out and, and see some of this interface between, you know, the, the land and the ocean and where sort of the water from freshwater interfaces with saltwater. But, but tell us a little bit more about um, how does this interface actually occur? I mean, most people think that we get our fresh water from, you know, these wells that are underground. But give us a little sense of where does this, this water doesn't just stay underground. It actually moves around. And, and describe what actually happens. Correct. So we all know from high school and even elementary school about the water cycle. And for Hawaii specifically, our aquifers or the subsurface water reservoir is recharged by rain. Mm -hmm. And because the island can only hold so much water, all that recharge eventually leaks out in form of streams or also um, as discharge along the ocean coast. And so all that groundwater that we will be talking about today is a leakage out of our aquifer, mm -hmm. subsurface water reservoir. So, uh, and then <clears throat> this, this sort of leakage, I mean, it comes out as, as maybe springs in the ocean. It's not that, I mean, I don't, I think a lot of, of uh, fishermen know about it. A lot of people in, in the ocean know um, a lot about it. But a lot of us sort of uh, city dwellers and, and cube dwellers and office dwellers, we probably don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about these springs that are coming out from the ocean, but there's actually quite a bit of that. It's actually all over the place, Bert. I mean, um, everybody goes to the beach and you stick your toes in the sand. You feel that cold water down there. That's what we call submarine groundwater discharge. That's exactly what we're working on. And you all feel it, and you don't know what that is. I, yeah, I and, often wonder, like, what's that water? cold? So some places it comes out as springs, like you say, and this is, you know, Fishermen have known forever in mm -hmm, Hawaii mm -hmm. about it, and they take gourds down, and they can get the fresh water from the bottom. Uh, that's uh, it's localized. Well, that was something like that, that. I, I just learned also, that that could actually be a freshwater resource. It could be, but it's saline. So it, it's not really fresh like drinking water. Mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. it's, it's slightly saline. It's brackish. And a lot of people um, for a long time have used they have backyard wells. And uh, that's brackish enough, so it's good enough to maybe cook your rice or mm -hmm. wash your clothes, but you wouldn't want to drink it. Mm. I love the expertise that we have gathered around the table, and I even include Bert in that as his work what? with UH has allowed him to understand even more about the, 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 the water resources. He's making me feel you know, very nervous about the amount of water that I'm wasting. But uh, from a, from my layman's perspective, uh, maybe Henrietta, you can help me here. You know, when you talk about fresh water and leakage into the ocean, um, it's hard for me to couple that with just this more consumer-oriented understanding mm -hmm. of the resource of fresh water and we need to conserve our fresh water. I'm like, if we're so short on fresh water, um, how is there so much water that actually, of that level of fresh waterness <laughs> that makes it into the ocean? Is... Uh, it's it's not is is it an ample resource really in that way? So you have to think about the water as a resource not only for humans but mm -hmm. for the ecosystem, and so all the coastal ecosystems in Hawaii and actually this is not unique to Hawaii all around the world are adapted to this nutrient source this freshwater source that if it's in the right composition then it's beneficial for the for the coastal zone and and so indeed this leakage cannot be looked at as a waste. Mm. Or as something, oh, we should have captured that right, because right. that could be our drinking water. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, for the for 
or I guess that's like brackish, brackish water, this sort of mixture of salt and fresh water. Correct. And there are ecosystems that have developed to live specifically in that area. In, in fact, if you uh, have the tank, the data from tank growth, where we've grown different seaweeds, different limu actually, in different salinities with different nutrients that reflect what the submarine groundwater discharge carries on a healthy situation. Most of our limus so far are actually those that prefer a little bit less salt and a little bit more nutrients. Mm. So Henrietta is exactly right. We probably have a flora that's evolved to be successful under these conditions where the submarine groundwater discharge has until recently been an uncharacterized contribution or source of fertilizer in a healthy, natural way for our our limu. And Mm -hmm. this is why the limu could have been so... Um, culturally important over the last hundreds of years where they would have been readily collected, they would have been good food, they would have been used for a number of cultural practices like ho'oponopono. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Now, are, are you, obviously the mayor of Maui at that time called you and said, hey, you know, there's some things happening in the ocean that i like to have you folks take a look at. And they may be contributed to by something that is happening on land. <clears throat> so I want to hear a little bit about how did you connect between what was happening on the land and whether those land contaminants were actually going into the aquifer? And how did you determine what direction that was perhaps taking underground and going into the beach or, you know, the coastline that you were studying? This has actually been a source of a lot of controversy and research activities um, since about 2002. With NOAA funding, we started a process to begin to try to understand our first steps with the invasive seaweeds that were being grown was to bring them into a laboratory and try to study them. And what we found was really fascinating, although it took us a a while to to realize what we had discovered. The plants that we brought back into the lab would not respond to any more nutrients that we gave them they wouldn't grow any faster. That's kind of a definition of, from a plant physiology point of view, Mm -hmm. how you show a limitation. It took us a while to realize that the reason that these plants didn't grow any faster is they were already saturated with the nutrients that were available to them in Mm -hmm. those coastal settings. Mm -hmm. They didn't need any more. And in fact, they weren't limited by nitrogen. They weren't limited by phosphorus. We could stimulate their growth by adding other uh, micronutrients, which had become, those micronutrients had then become the limiting factors because the ecosystem was flooding these areas with too much fertilizer for the plants to Mm -hmm, respond mm -hmm. to. That was kind of a pivotal moment when we realized that there's so much fertilizer coming in that we needed to not consider ocean sources because the ocean hadn't really changed. What had changed were the land-based activities in the areas that were close to Mm. where those blooms took place. So, Craig, I mean, I I, I only vaguely recall maybe news stories about suddenly, you know, massive amounts of algae on beaches and and that being an issue. Can you help me wrap my head around the scale of that problem? I mean, that it got to the point where the mayor's like, what are we going to do? Was it interfering with, uh, with ocean safety? Was it interfering with commerce in some way? I mean, what was the flag that said, we need action? Celia knows better than I, but uh, it's it was it's been a big problem. It was on Maui. It got to the point where it, it's a big impact, negative impact on tourism. You know, which is economically super important. The beaches were completely covered with 
big heaps of seaweed of mm. limu, and they had to bring bulldozers out every day to cl- pick that stuff up and get it off the beach so the tourists could come out and, and lay in the sand. So, um, so yeah, Celia, you know that there's that uh, that that beach right after you get off the airport in Maui, Kahului, uh, Kahului and you're you're driving kind of by the uh, the Maui Arts and and uh, Performance Center over mm-hmm. there. Yes, and and depending on what time of year, they could be heaps of of algae that right. are drying out and right, really and that was repeated in Ma'alaya as well, and over at different times of of this multi-decade cycle over in the Kahului side or in the Kihei side. And so what we started to backing up, we started to realize that there were persistent algal blooms, largely of invasive species, so things that were not native to our ecosystem. And they were centered around some of the major municipal sources for managing wastewater. Mm-hmm. Well, so Henry, I really liked how you kind of put a perspective that we can't think of this groundwater as an entitlement of humans. Absolutely right. So here's another question. So now we have some change. Obviously, chemistry has changed. And now the seaweed, I would say, is very is thriving excessively. So, um, But it is it is a change, and it is a change in balance. So uh, perhaps from the, the nature side of the question, why... I can see how it can affect tourism. Why is too much uh, seaweed bad for either the seaweed or for the ecosystem in which it's thriving? Right. So algae, uh, especially the non-native ones, are are overwhelmingly taking all the space um, away from other organisms. And and so I would go back to the water here. Hawaii, the islands, are so unique in that. All the groundwater travel, that travels from upland, underground, reaching the coastline doesn't get filtered much. Our aquifers are really porous. The lava flows let the water flow through. So all the nutrients don't get filtered out like it would be happening in many other places around the world. So we get all these excess nutrients in a raw form just coming to the shoreline. And so that's what really make the difference, not just in how much nitrogen, for example, comes in, but also the ratio of the nitrogen to phosphorus, that all these ecosystems are used to a certain ratio and suddenly it's over time, it's getting different now. Well, so Celia, actually, what, something she said was intriguing to me that our, our our land is porous, so things don't get filtered that much. Again, as a layperson, I thought, wow, those Ko'olau Mountains must be making our water the cleanest, purest, totally naturally filtered source, nutrient-free and contaminant-free in the world. Actually, that's not true then, that, in fact, our water might not... Uh, have the same kind of barriers that you might see in other geologies. And I think that's supported by the speed with which some of these waters actually pass through the islands, that the flow has been surprisingly fast, at least in the the kinds of studies that Craig has done using dyes that are injected into the wells. The the movement ends up being surprisingly rapid. Yeah, Yeah, it can be very fast um, along the coast, especially when wastewater treatment plants are close to the coast. It can take... uh, a year or two before that, um, what they pump into the ground actually makes it out into the coastal zone, as she refers to as a, a big, big issue in Lahaina in particular. Now, is it a matter of very porous rocks, or is it that there's – I also thought that maybe the rocks are so solid that there's just no – that it just flows no, they, they have a lot of porosity, and the water passes uh, fairly ah, quickly. Okay. You know, but from inland, it can take uh, a decade perhaps or so. If you're close to the coast, it doesn't take as long, but they but they're porous, and uh, remember that the islands are built up of layer after layer after layer of uh, of sheets of basalt flows, and between each one of those flows is a natural 
ancient soil horizon, basically, and water passes readily along that horizon and makes its way out to the coast without any problem at all. If you're in the uplands, the water is clean. I mean, our drinking water is some of the best in the world, for mm-hmm. sure, without a doubt. Um, uh, but as it travels, it picks up additional nutrients and any other kind of contaminants as it makes its way to the coast. Anything that's above ground ends up filtering down, infiltrating into the groundwater supply. Mm. So, and this is basically what a lot of all this study has been about is how has our land use changes affected, impacted the water into the groundwater table. And that groundwater is usually people don't, it's invisible to the naked eye. Let's use an infrared from an airplane, which is something we do to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, makes it out to the coast, and it can be then heavily laden with with nutrients, which which drives these algal blooms. So when you go out and you see sort of these algal blooms taking place, and you are making some assumptions around what kinds of contaminants might be causing that kind of bloom, how do you take that and then go back into the land and try to figure out like what is, what is it? What signature uh-huh. are you looking for? That's actually take you know coming from the land and actually exiting into the ocean, yeah, and then having sort of the, the correlation between right, yeah, yeah. Hot. So we do that. We, we kind of generally refer to it as backtracking, and uh, there's different ways to do it. But one of the ways we use a, a, a particularly nice one we use is using the isotopes of water, mm-hmm. just the water mm-hmm. itself, because the water is a very conservative type of element. And uh, basically what it comes down to is we analyze the isotopic composition of rainwater, and so we know where that water originated. And using that and, fi- and getting the water at the down end, you know, at the beach side, we trace back through different processes. We trace back to where the water came from. Then we get groundwater trajectories mm. and using groundwater models as well as all built into this. So mm-hmm. if we ha- once we have a, we call it a particle trajectory of the water, the flow path of the water, then we know the you know where the water has traveled, and then we look at the the use of the land above that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Celio, I've heard the word used many times so far: nutrients, nutrients getting in there, and nutrients feeding these algal blooms. And I hear nutrients, I'm like, what's so wrong with nutrients? I, I want my kids to get more nutrients, nutrients, nutrients. nutrients. <laughs> yeah, like, we're good, right? Yeah. So where how, how does it work for me? Yeah, yeah. That, that these nutrients are actually a problem. That's an excellent question because. Of course, plants, the seaweeds and our favorite limu are, are plants that require nutrients in order to grow. We know enough from the plant physiology to say that the macronutrient, the one they need the most, is nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And it comes in either ammonium or nitrate as the principal forms that the plants can use. Mm-hmm. And so, as Craig was saying, we can also use another stable isotope ratio of the nitrogen actually that's carried by the water and taken up by the plants as another independent way of looking at the path where that fertilizer might have originated. Mm -hmm. And that has been a powerful scheme for us to survey at a macro scale island-wide, which we published in 2010, but also at a fine scale where we can put out algae that we deploy in cages so we treat it in a way so that they're hungry for fertilizer. We put them out along the coast in a specified set of of, uh, distances and we can see from the tissue analysis of the radio of the stable isotopes for nitrogen where those land-based sources of pollution Mm. have actually come from. Mm -hmm. And so of course all plants need nutrients. Mm -hmm. But it's when the excess is far um, greater than what is natural background that we end up in trouble. And this is an important point because what we see with the invasive seaweeds like Hypnia musiformis is that the native plant community cannot compete. Our native species 
I think have evolved, and this is some of what my lab is still working on over these decades. We've they've evolved to be very successful in maybe high flow, low nutrient regimes, and then these the submarine groundwater discharge is a pulse that they can acquire mm-hmm. quickly. But when you have a massive plume of tainted submarine groundwater discharge with elevated nutrients by maybe an order of magnitude, those plants are not able, our native plants are not able to compete. And these invasives that have been brought in for a number of other reasons are superweeds. They Mm -hmm. are able to flourish. A good example of that is early work where we took um, one of the Hypnia musiformis, the red that's a real problem on Maui, and in cages we put it in what we thought was the plume so the plant was able to take the nutrients that was coming through this system that Craig described. That plant doubled its weight in two days. Hmm. So imagine if your tomato grew in at, at, <laughs> at le- that level in a container. This was a phenomenal level of productivity because of the loading of nutrient was far in excess of what is natural for these ecosystems. Yeah, and as Henry said, that could grow grow so fast that it just crowds out everything else. Well, you know, I <clears throat> I do want to ask uh, another nutrient question that I think would help change. Ryan's mind about what nutrients are, and it, it has to do with <laughs> septic tanks. Uh, but Yummy. I want to hold that thought. Uh, we want to uh, actually want to go to a short break, but we will continue our conversation with Craig Glenn, Henrietta Dulai, and Celia Smith about the Maui groundwater contaminants. And of course, we'd love to hear from you too. You can call 941 3689 or from the neighbor islands, including Maui, 877 941 3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. A Middle East scholar looks at the mindset of millennials in today's Arab world. The executive director of the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association looks at today's tourism climate. And a Hawaii Island Magic Camp teaches kids how to levitate and disappear. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, have you ever heard of the gambler's fallacy? So the gambler's fallacy is expecting that if you've had a streak of a couple of outcomes in a row, that the next outcome is much more likely to go the other way. And that's just simply not true. Well, it turns out that gamblers aren't the only people who get fooled. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday evening at 7, right after With Good Reason. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Hawaii Pacific University and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Craig Glenn, Henrietta Dulai, and Celia Smith from the University of Hawaii about the impact of contaminants on our coastal ecosystems. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, we had a great tease. We're talking nutrients. Yum. Ryan was, like, ready to feed his kids all the nutrients that he could get his hands on. <laughs> but I want to, you know, understand a little bit more about what actually is in, included in that nutrient mix. And there's, like, a lot of things. Like, there's septic tanks out there. There's pesticides. There's, there's nasty stuff that gets into the ground that goes into the groundwater and then ultimately gets released out into the ocean. Henrietta, tell us, what else is there? 
Right, so we heard about the nitrogen isotopic signature that really gives away, uh, is a good tool to give away this, this um, septic um, component. Mm-hmm. But if there is nitrogen, there are other things that are dissolved in the water and are traveling with groundwater to the coastal ocean. And many of these are of anthropogenic origin that are part of our metabolism, our diet, and so forth. So we, um, we, for example, focused on pesticides, and we do find all sorts of pesticides in the groundwater. Um, some other researchers looked at pharmaceuticals, so all the medication people digest and then um, uh, leaves our body through metabolic pathways. Uh, those have been found in groundwater And we are just beginning to even quantify their fluxes Mm. or even looking at what their effect is on the coastline. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's this is a new area that that we need to invest into more as we talk about wastewater injection in the coastal aquifers, uh, banning septics, uh, I'm sorry, uh, cesspools to upgrade to septic Mm -hmm. systems or even reuse of recycled reclaimed water. If we reuse it at the coastline, if it still has some components that might leach out eventually to the shoreline, so all these might affect um, the coastal now, system. Well, all these things that you're describing, they're, they're making me nervous, and I'm thinking, does this actually impact the drinking water that we have? Um, mostly these sources are along the coastline. And so not so much because our wells, drinking wells, the board of water supply wells are upstream of most development. Mm-hmm. So it's more right now, more urgent for the coastal health. Okay. Now, Celia, can you help me understand a little bit of the scale of the issue? Because, for example, we're talking about septic tanks and um, seepage in that respect, but we also have on the news every couple of months, it seems, uh, a flood, a sewage spill directly into the ocean. I mean, uh, how, how would you... Uh, compare those kind of impacts because I would imagine that in a modern society as we treat our sewage and it is supposedly sterilized in that way to remove these quote-unquote nutrients, um, but we'd still have matters of of spills and and things like that. So uh, is a single sewage spill, for example, uh, obviously both are bad, but how does that compare to what we're talking about in terms of the impact of the seepage? That's an excellent question, Ryan. We And I'm not sure that we have the full data set that we need mm-hmm. in order to, to answer that. What I can say is that I think that we need to be considerate of the scale at which these events take place, and that's easier to track where a wastewater spill might go, and that would clearly have impact on the phytoplankton, the zooplankton, the benthic community of corals and algae, other invertebrates. But these groundwater plumes, in part, as Craig said, because you can't see them, we really don't understand necessarily, and I think that was one of our important contributions with this paper, we don't necessarily understand the fullness of the scale for which the impacts would take place. One of the approaches of putting algae in cages out to have them tell us by being tape recorders, have them tell us Mm -hmm. where the nutrient input comes in, we're beginning to get a sense of the scale at which these plumes are operating. It becomes, in my mind, very interesting to see how that changes over a season or multiple seasons, over uh, different storm events. How do we have these chronic um, deliveries versus pulse deliveries impact our environment. One of the, the notable impacts from this paper is the occurrence of a, of a whole new community of dominant uh, invertebrates, the zoanthids, show up, which we mm. didn't, was in a way unexpected. 
We weren't expecting to see an animal system come in and replace algae in a place that had a lot of fertilizer Mm -hmm. input, and yet we're also now getting emails from colleagues on other islands saying, hey, I've got these zoanthids here. Help us understand what's going on. So we're really at at a very beginning stage, I think, in understanding Mm. some of those points of scale and impact on a short term and a long term. Excellent. Now, you mentioned uh, these sort of blooms and and kind of the nutrients uh, impacting uh, the thriving of, of maybe these alien species. What I'm also curious about is how does it affect the corals? Are, are they contributing to bleaching? Are they con- contributing to a dieback? Are they are some corals thriving because of all these nutrients? I mean, wh- what's happening with the corals? If I yeah, if I can take that, I, I think it's it's pretty clear that corals do not thrive in nutrient rich water. Although I may stand to be corrected by my colleagues, and I hope some will call in and correct me if I'm wrong. But what does seem to happen chronically is that invasive algae will overgrow coral in the cases where the nutrients are elevated. And Mm -hmm. so the coral may or may not be able to tolerate it. But in fact, if the algal community is overgrowing them, they will be dead in short order. Great. Now, we're talking to Craig Glenn, uh, Celia Smith, and Henrietta Dulai, all from the University of Hawaii. We're talking about uh, the Maui sort of groundwater study and how it impacts the marine ecosystem. And we want to welcome the calls that are coming in. We want to welcome Sachi from Kona to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Um, I watched a program um, fairly recently about a, a, a group that is planting vetiver along the coastline, um, and it, uh, I believe it's on Oahu and the Big Island, possibly on Maui, but what they're doing is planting it along the coastline, and from what I, I can't remember the details, but what I gather, it absorbs a lot of toxic material and um, protects the ocean from groundwater that's um, not good. And um, it, it holds the, the earth in, too, so that it, it doesn't, uh, you know, collapse into the ocean with the contaminants in it. Um, but if you want to research it, I would suggest typing vetiver, V-E-T-I-V-E-R, mm. and Hawaii into a search, and um, you will find them. And it's very, very uh, uplifting. That's all I can tell you. It's very exciting and uplifting. It, well- well, about Sachi. exactly what you're talking about. Well, thank you very much for that uh, bit of info. And, and maybe, Celia, do you, are you familiar with, uh, with that? I'm, I'm not familiar, Sachi, with that particular case, but I could imagine where the roots of a, of a land plant would go deep yep. enough if this groundwater is shallow enough that they could, the roots could actually be tapping this nutrient supply, and we would be able to see that in the, these uh, stable isotope ratios of nitrogen. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. the same devices and questions that we've asked with the algae could also apply to strand vegetation, the coastal vegetation, and that could be another uh, therapy that could be put in place if, I, it, if it tests out, if it falls in place. Yeah, I know that I've heard of it in the sense that it's used to keep land in place, certainly, and for people who own property along the coast, that's attractive to them. They talk about the oils in it being valuable in that way, but the filtering qualities I wasn't quite uh, familiar with. Craig, did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I guess my only thought was, is it going to be effective at the levels at which the groundwater is is reaching the ocean? It, it It's very deep, actually. Mm-hmm. The, ground, the groundwater discharge originates very deep. Mm-hmm. So, sure. so uh, but that's not, is our biocontrols, I guess, is one way to to find uh, that question. Certainly a good idea. Yeah, you know, there's lots of you know, places that have estuaries. Estuaries are natural 
filters which help filter out lots of uh, pollutants that get into the ocean. So along the same lines, yeah, it's good. Well, that's a great question. Thanks, uh, Sachi, for calling in. We want to also go to Mike from Paia, actually on Maui. So maybe uh, you got Mike. Uh, welcome to Bite Mars Cafe. Hi, thank you. Sure. Um, my question is for those of us that live in close proximity to the ocean that have lawns and landscaping, is there detrimental effect to the ocean by using fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides? Do they make it into the groundwater, or is there impact along the shoreline for those of us that are close to it? That's an excellent question. Thank so you. who wants to tackle Everyone's that? Henrietta, Henrietta's ready to jump on the mic. <laughs> I am ready. I okay. think I have some answers. Uh, we have detected pesticides that are coming from small-scale operations like backyard green uh, lawns. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really, um, the coastal geology, so these conduits that take the groundwater, let it infiltrate, so the ground, uh, water to infiltrate into the ground, are very variable. So it will really depend on your specific uh, geology. But in general, yes. Yes, any close proximity to the coastline uh, will result in some leachate making mm-hmm. it out yeah. to the ocean. You know, my dad used to have a beach, uh, beachfront property in Ainahaina, and that was always a concern of them, even though it wasn't even necessarily something brought to them. But now that I've heard, for example, that our, our island is not this perfect Brita filter that's just going to fix everything that we put into the ocean, <laughs> yes, I think if you, have a lawn, if you have a lawn and you're you know within smelling distance of the oceans, you probably uh, need to understand the velocity with which these things can travel. So I would just mention that glyphosate, which is a roundup, that people use um, to get rid of weeds, those um, have been detected um, pretty much uniformly across um, all the study sites that that were looked at by us and also the Department of Health. All right. Take it easy on those guys. Okay. We want to welcome Xavier from uh, Kaimuki to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Aloha. Um, Well, my concern is, is there going to be uh, anybody looking at at uh, population density and just how many people can Oahu and these islands take. At some point, aren't we going to reach a maximum density where we can no longer continue to filter the water for each individual? I mean, if you look at it here in Oahu, we have high rises going up every day. Uh, if you look at Ala Moana Shopping Center, look at Ward Shopping Center, new condos, new buildings, high rises, hundreds and hundreds of people. Where are they going to live? Where are they going to go to the bathroom? And what are we going to do with all that waste? Isn't there going to be a point where we have to say, I'm sorry, there's no more room? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, that's a segue into the next section of our show, which I do want to get in the last minute or so some ideas on okay, so what do we do? We got all these contaminants. We got these nutrients going into the ocean. And yet we have you know, land use policies and certainly business concerns that concentrate development along the waterfront. Craig, what's the answer? Oh, of course I'm going to say more study, right? <laughs> <laughs> Typical kind of answer from a scientist. But it's really true. We, we, uh, it's complicated and we really need to put more effort into it. We've only kind of scratched the surface here around this table mm-hmm. today on uh, all the different types of inputs that are involved. So, uh, I mean, we, we haven't really discussed the particulars about the agriculture, you know, sugarcane and its latency effect through time, cesspools. 
something we're working on hard now. I mean, Hawaii is we have a huge amount of cesspools relative to the rest of the mm-hmm. nation. Mm-hmm. So, so, and and so, does your work get into the hands of our policymakers? I mean, how do you? see the knowledge that you've gained as a result of the studies actually getting into some of the urban development people, the folks that are doing sure policy? Sure it does. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a, a lot of the people that uh, are stakeholders, you know, are everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, from the, the Joe on the street, um, and we work with the Department of Health, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, the C Grant has funded us for a long time, uh, and so to get that information back into the policy um, makers' hands, so they can use it, is really an important part of what we do. It really is. Now, Celia, to maybe wrap us up, I mean, this project and this research has been going on for years. What is the next milestone that we can look forward to? This is a great study that ha- that is uh, recently published, but what's coming next? Well, from my point of view, the biology of the organisms in our coastal environment is really understudied, and this is a call for action for anybody interested in marine biology or in botany or in biology. There are programs at Manoa that you can specialize as undergraduate majors and also a marine biology graduate program. Come and join us. We need uh, everybody who's interested. Fantastic. Very good. Henrietta, I mean, where can people get more information as this uh, study continues? Uh, Of course. This is never-ending. As we said, we just scratched the surface, and I would like to make the same call that um, earth sciences, geology, hydrology, those are all very exciting fields that, that we need more people in. And also, I would say that oh, anyone who needs information would, of course, uh, could look up our website, uh, SOAS, the School of Ocean, Earth Science and Technology, or, or then Botany at University of Hawaii. And so we need more students. All we right. need help to make this happen. Get those STEM pipelines going. That's right. Please, please, yes. Well, thanks. uh, Well, of course, Craig Glenn and uh, Henrietta Dulai both are with SOAST. And, of course, Celia Smith is with the Department of Botany over at the University of Hawaii. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Mahalo. Mahalo. Thank you you for having us. (laughs) And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we will do our annual gadget show. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. We're getting kind of Christmassy. Here's Streetlight Cadence with a song called First Noel. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you.